Hi, everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we review your favorite animals by rating them out of 10 in effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We're not zoological experts, but we try to get the information from the actual experts whenever possible. On a personal note, I hope everybody had a great Halloween. Ours was nice and spooky. It was. Our boys dressed as Ash and Pikachu and went trick-or-treating together, and it was really cute. Extremely. It was very cute. I cobbled together a DIY Pikachu costume for the little one, and it definitely showed because it fell apart within about 20 minutes. We were applying safety pins as we were walking out the door. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a cosplayer, y'all. I think it turned out great. It turned out pretty cute, yes. We had some cute little Pokemon boys walking down the street. Mm -hmm. It was really adorable. And it was the older one's idea, which Mm -hmm. I thought was very sweet. They had a lot of fun. Also, just a little personal, I suppose, announcement is that I have started a new podcast in addition to this one, not mm. replacing this one. Oh, okay. So the, <laughs> the security guard standing by the door is for something else then? <laughs> yeah, no, they're dismissed. They're with, dismissed. With the empty box? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're not uh, being asked to clean out your oh, desk, okay, Christian. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, uh, it is in addition to this podcast, and it is with Ashley Hamer, who longtime listeners may remember from our guest episode where she joined me to talk about giraffes which was really fun so Mm -hmm. um the new podcast is called spellbound and gagged and it's not for kids it's a little bit more on the not safe for work side um but it's just about all sorts of weird funky things creepy gross not necessarily animals no, no. Got it. So that one's uh, quite different from this one, but I figured that uh, if you like listening to me on this podcast, you might like that one too. Uh, there's only a trailer up right now, but the first episode will go up on Friday, which is November 11th. You can go subscribe to the feed now, but the first episode will be up on Friday. I'm I'm really excited about it, and I'm really proud of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of all that I wanted to talk about up top. I believe it's your turn to go first this week. So this week I bring the velvet worms. Worms plural. Yes. Okay. It's because this describes an entire phylum of animals. So we're kind of taking a zoomed out view of these guys. Yes. We're not getting into the nitty gritty. Correct. And that phylum is called Onacophora, which means claw bearers. Mm, claw bearers? Right. No, bearers. bearers. Like Wielding claws. <laughs> oh, see, this is this always trips me up with like ring bearer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bearer <laughs> is a difficult word. It is, but that is what it means. Wait, and they're worms with claws? Yes, more on that later. Interesting. Okay, I'll just keep that in my pocket for Sorry, now. Sorry, part of that sentence was correct. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so this species was submitted, or this animal rather, was submitted by Andrew Rodriguez. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. And I'll be getting information from Animal Diversity Web as well as Australian Museum's website. Excellent. Are these Australian critters? It can be. So we're talking about a whole phylum here. So lots of different species and a pretty big geographic range too. All right. So their adult size can range from 5 millimeters to 15 centimeters. Oh, so they can be real tiny or not so tiny. Right. So that's for you know our American listeners, that's 0.2 to 6 inches. Six inches? That's huge. (laughs) I've never seen a worm that big. These are not worms. Okay. All right. I'm already wrong. What I was alluding to prior. Off to a very strong start. (laughs) I've already misunderstood something fundamental (laughs) to this animal. But it is not, you know, 
your fault. They're called velvet worms. They are. Why put it in the name? Yes. Next, you're going to tell me they're not made of velvet. They are not. But they do have qualities that was probably why they were called velvet worms. Okay. So where you can find these is kind of based on the family, which there are two families in this taxonomy that we're talking about. There's the parapatids, or the members of the parapatidae. Uh, those live in tropical Americas, tropical Western Africa, and Southeastern Asia. And the other family is the, oh boy, peripatopsids. Peri the petopsid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the members of the peripat, oh my gosh, peripatopsidae. <laughs> you can say peri the platypus. Uh, no, that's okay. And those are in the areas that were once part of the supercontinent Gondwana land. Ooh. Oh, we're getting Pangeic. Yes. So that's Chile, South Africa, Australia, New Guinea, and New Zealand. Interesting. So did they kind of split with like the continental divide? I think so. And this kind of talks about how long they've been around, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that does suggest that uh, they would have split before the continents had even gotten into their current places. That's quite a long time. But Australia has the most described species at 74. Okay. Around, I think around 200 species total that are currently described, but there's okay. probably more, of course. They are all terrestrial, and they can be found in dark, moist microhabitats. Aww. That is what I think of when I think of a... I'm going to keep saying worm. I'm sorry. Please <laughs> know that that's not what I mean, but... Yeah, I gotcha. You know, that is what I think of. I think of a, a little squiggly guy mm-hmm. is what I'm going to say instead of worm. <laughs> They're just little squiggly guys. They do have a cylindrical squirmy shape that mm. likens to a worm, mm-hmm. but they have feet that are more like a caterpillar's. Love this. Yes. So they have these little tiny feet, these little foot nubs that goes along <laughs> the length of their bodies. And of course, different species might have different number of feet. And each one of these feet has these little two claws on the end. They're, they're so tiny, though. Oh, reminds me of a tardigrade. It's funny you say that. Oh, yes. <laughs> More on that soon. Okay. But just to finish, describe what they look like. Yes. So they have these little bumps um, that gives them a, a velvety look and feel. Mm. If you were to touch them. It's like a texture. Yeah. They're squishy. They don't have an exoskeleton or an endoskeleton, (laughs) for that matter. (laughs) No bones. None. Uh, They have antenna that might look like the eye stalks of a snail. Oh, sure. But they aren't eye stalks. They they do have eyes, but they're like on the main body, not, not at the end of those antenna. And they have this weird round mouth opening at the head. I feel like it's kind of cute. It is. I think so. <laughs> it's a very, like, a lot of rounded features. Yes. Like, everything about them is very, like, bubbly. Uh-huh. Very unassuming, which is good for animals of our size, but not so much smaller animals. Mm. <laughs> you know what the, the rows of feet make me think of? Mm. The cat bus from my neighbor. Oh, yeah. That's what they, because they're, like, round like the big cat, mm. and they got all the feet. That's what it kind of reminds That's me cute. of. cute. Hi, it's me editing the episode. I just had to pop in super quick to say that I am not alone in this observation. In 2013, a species of velvet worm from Vietnam was formally named Eoparapatus totoro due to its resemblance to the cat bus. That's all. Back to the episode. This phylum is thought to be most closely related to the arthropods and the tardigrades. Nice. Yes. Okay. I see the resemblance to the tardigrades. Mm-hmm. I don't see it so much with the arthropods. <laughs> they tend to be more pointy. Right. They do have some anatomical similarities with arthropods. I think their breathing system is similar to, to the arthropods. Oh, yeah. They got yeah. a weird, like, 
vent system. Right. So they, it's not like they don't have lungs that they're gasping in air like mammals do. They yeah. have uh, ho- little holes along their whole body that is doing that oxygen exchange. Yeah. The air kind of like blows through their body. Sort of. Yeah. It's like a system of chambers <laughs> inside and stuff. It's wild. So uh, the velvet worms have, were largely unchanged for their 500 million years. So again, we're talking about stuff that predates dinosaurs, mm. uh, like we did, I think, the last episode with me on it. It's interesting that we would even know that, considering that they don't have any bones to fossilize. Right. Well, uh, they do find fossil records, though. I don't know enough about that to tell you what they're finding, though. Mm. It could be just like an imprint. <laughs> I think I saw some things about their their very distant ancestors that were aquatic. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. But also, like you'll see places where like there will be imprints of soft tissue in like, I don't know, mud that eventually hardened into stone. Mm. And then you can get like an imprint of soft tissue that way. Right. So I don't know, maybe one got like solidified into the mud or something. I'm not sure. I didn't come across that. But I I do know that there are fossil records that they're basing a lot of this off of. What if there's one encased in amber that then scientists like get the DNA from and then put it into dinosaurs and then we get a Jurassic Park situation, but with giant velvet worms? That would be horrifying (laughs) for reasons that will become clear. (laughs) They were once thought to be the missing link between arthropods and segmented worms, but uh, they're much more closely related to the arthropods. I see. Yeah. Not to worms at all. Correct. Uh Uh-oh, I did that thing again. Did you not give any numbers? (laughs) Did you forget to do the whole thing that the whole point of the podcast is to do? Yep, I did do that. Okay, great. That's fine. You were so deep into it. So we were doing our notes kind of like sitting next to each other, and uh-huh. I was watching you have like a crisis meltdown over some something you found in these yeah, notes. So yeah. something appears to have uh, distracted you from... So norm- normally my process is the numbers are last. Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's fair, right? Because yeah. you want to assign it a rating right. with all the facts. It's like writing your summary last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel you. (laughs) But I still need to describe them. For those new or unfamiliar to our podcast, we rate these animals in three categories. Our first category is of effectiveness, and this describes physical attributes. Could be things like wings, fire breathing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we've talked about so many with fire breathing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of convergent evolution there. (laughs) So as far as effectiveness goes, I will give an eight. That's pretty good. Yes. That's pretty good. Not as much as I would have expected for something that's been largely unchanged for 500 million years, though. Yeah. um, It's very niche. I could see that. (laughs) Sure. Like a specialist. Yeah. That's a, it's bold of you to canonically confirm how you pronounce that word. It's, I some, I usually in my head flip a coin and then go with that. So unfortunately, I'm probably not consistent with it. No, that's called hedging your bets, actually. You want to play both (laughs) sides of the field so that no matter what, you're always going to be right. Yep. So, like we mentioned, they have many legs uh, with two tiny claws on them. And you actually see this with tardigrades, too, Mm. uh, at a very much smaller level. But you can see this, too. And I think if you look at them side by side, you can definitely see the similarities. Yes. It's kind of like if they took a tardigrade, made it longer and, of course, bigger, gave it some pigmentation. All that stuff. If you took a tardigrade with like the clone stamp tool in Photoshop, mm-hmm. or like, you know how sometimes when your computer freezes and you drag the windows around and it kind of like leaves a little trail behind the window of like all the copies of the window? Oh, no. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. If you did that <laughs> yeah. with a tardigrade. Yeah. Or it seems like the tardigrade might be the first part of a spore game that later turns into the velvet worm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so uh, next thing we'll talk about is their most well-known characteristic. Yes. And that is their adhesive ranged attack is what I'll call it. That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> what? Did, what? I don't know. I have no idea what oh, you're talking oh, about. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, most well-known to some, I'm sure. <laughs> this is news to me. So ours, the person that submitted it, Andrew, mentioned seeing this, the Velvet Worm, in a documentary. And when you see these in a documentary, this is usually the topic that is focused on. Okay. And it is that they fire little strands of what is essentially glue. Hilarious. Yeah. I love it. And two streams towards usually their prey. So Spider-Man. It's a web shot. It's not web. It's more. It's really more like Elmer's glue, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the super glue. Maybe. So it's just sticky. It's not like painful. No, not painful. It's not like acid or super hot, like the like the bombardier beetle did. did. Sure. This is really an immobilization tactic. Oh. Yeah. Immobilization. Yeah. So they they cover their prey in these strands of glue, and it quickly hardens. Oh. Uh, so you know they're they're restrained either against their own limbs or uh, on the surface that they found themselves on at the time. Oh wow. Yeah. Is this a, a defensive thing or an offensive thing? Both, but mostly offensive to catch prey. Oh, okay, yeah. that makes sense. So that glue is produced by slime glands, and they're fired from oral papillae, uh, which is these two little bits next to their mouth hole, uh, that when they fire them, they, they extend out, and they look like a second set of antenna that are smaller than their actual antenna. Oh, okay. And then they kind of squiggle around while they're firing it. <laughs> <laughs> This is hilarious to me. I've seen lawn sprinklers that kind of work like this. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a little turret. A little turret that just pops out and goes... Basically. (laughs) And that can be fired up to 30 centimeters away, or about a foot. They also use this to maybe escape from predators. I Uh, can see that. (laughs) So the things that eat them, by the way... Well, so first, let's talk about what they eat. Yeah. So they're eating smaller insects and spiders and that kind of thing. Interesting. But however, they're predated by birds, centipedes, spiders, and also a particular snake called the Hemprichis coral snake. Wow. In South America. Interesting. That is thought to exclusively eat velvet worms. A specialist in velvet worms. <laughs> yes. How granular do you need to get? I like- don't know. It's got to be an easy meal. It's That's like true. putting a smaller tube in a larger tube. <laughs> well, but also you mentioned that like they don't have any bones, so right. it's just a, a giant noodle. Mm-hmm. It's a big, big ramen noodle. And I assume it, if it's a coral snake, venom is the primary way of stopping the velvet worm. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah, you'd have to kind of get the jump on it so it doesn't coat mm. you in glue first, I guess. But also, I guess if for if you're a snake. And you get coated in glue. As long as you just don't coil up, you don't have any limbs to get caught up in, right? Or uh, hopefully the you know your head doesn't get stuck to a log or something. True. Yeah. You can't exactly scrape it off. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just feel like a snake that like that particular style of attack would not be incredibly effective against a snake. Probably I don't not. Think. No. Yeah. Um. So they are carnivores. I love that. They look so like they're so friend shaped. <laughs> the idea that they're like a vicious predator is is stunning so, to me. So it's one of those animals that, in their normal form, yes, fine, cute, cuddly. But if they were bigger, you know, they would try to eat you. Oh, like immediately yeah, on sight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they are carnivores, but they're looking for a meat milkshake. I'm sorry. One more time. Looking for a meat milkshake. 
Okay, I'm going to need... Here's what they do. Yes, please. <laughs> so they immobilize their prey. Can't get away. Yeah, love it. They use the this kind of teeth in their mouth to uh, make an opening, usually in an exoskeleton we're talking about. Okay. And they use their saliva that partially liquidizes the insides of their prey, and then they slurp it out. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't think you should have done this one. <laughs> I do. This is a return to form for you. <laughs> I feel like you're back in your comfort zone. There's so much more. Oh, my God. How? <laughs> <laughs> so they're kind of like, rather than like chewing the actual, like, it's not, I guess it's not meat if it's like a bug, right? But like rather than yeah. chewing the contents. The innards. Using, yeah. They're like letting a caustic liquid do the work for them, I suppose. Some of it. Not all of it, though. That's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. Hate that. <laughs> So we, we talked about their antenna and they re- how they resemble eye stalks of a snail. They do have eyes that are at the base of those antenna. Not at are, the tip? No. Huh. So that, that's how I mentioned that they're different in that way I from see. snails. Okay. And there are simple lenses, so you know it's not great vision. Mm. They have hydrophobic skin, uh, which is kind of a result of these overlapping scales that give it that velvet look and feel. Oh. Yeah. I think very, very tiny scales. I guess it's probably a good idea if you're so little, like a very small amount of water could really like yeah. ruin your whole day. <laughs> it's like if you've ever tried to watch a butterfly fly in the rain, it's bad. Yeah. Now here's what threw me for a loop. One one of the many things that threw me for a loop. <laughs> you were <laughs> you were spiraling <laughs> as you were doing these notes. They shed their skin like a snake. Now, what skin do they have to shed? It's these little scales. Okay. Yeah. Oh, do they leave a little shed, like a little husk behind? It looks like just snakes? like a, sh- a, a snake skin shed. Oh maybe a little softer and less brittle. Huh. So it kind of looks like a, a very thin sock that they'd crawl out of. <laughs> <laughs> very, like, very moist. Like a, it, I, I'm imagining that it looks like those little fake socks that you can put on at the shoe store when you're trying yes, on shoes. exactly like that. Yep. Ew. Yep, 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 yep. Gross. But with all the little feet in it, of course. Oh, that's kind of cute. That brings it back for me a little bit. <laughs> uh, they must stay moist because they'll otherwise lose their their own moisture through their those breathing pores we talked about. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, that kind of track. I mean, there's other critters like that. That's mm-hmm. not super weird. Now, here's the thing that really shook me. Okay. They have... What I'll call and summarize as unconventional fertilization okay. in, in the terms of mating. My interest is peaked. <laughs> Let's hear it. Let's talk about what, what we might consider be normal fertilization. Typically, we talk about sperm needing to meet an egg to fertilize said egg, and then yes. that egg will develop into a creature. Uh-huh. That can take a couple different forms. Usually, well, a lot of the time, that we're, we're either talking about an egg that is within the female individual and then sperm finding its way to that egg to fertilize and then being born. Sure. Or in the case of fish, you know, they expel their eggs into mm. the water and then then they're fertilized outside of the body. Sure. Yeah. Now you might think those are the only two options. <laughs> <laughs> so in some species, the male will deposit its spermatophores on the skin of the female. 
the tissue that it is sitting on collapses. Uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> I don't like it. And then the spermatophores travel into the female's body and penetrates the ovaries to fertilize the eggs. No. Absolutely not. Yeah. Canceled. I hate, no. <laughs> so That's a horrible way of doing that. I've never heard of this before, <laughs> ever. Now, I, again, I don't profess to know every single thing about animals. No, for sure not. We already said we do not. <laughs> in our couple hundred of episodes, this is the first time I've come across this. This is nonsensical to me. Every word that you've said in the last couple of minutes has been... Well, they're just so unique and different, and yeah. it makes sense they're in their own phylum. That's right. how different they are from all other animals. <laughs> yeah, they're so far removed, but yeah. still, like, even to just be like, here is some sperm, I'll just let that drill its way into it just your body. Quicksands into the body, <laughs> it just clips through <laughs> their skin. It's crazy. Oh my gosh, I don't think I like that. Uh, that is one I'm glad that we have decided to <laughs> do things a little differently over here in the mammal kingdom. Right. And also somewhat related, the females have the ability to store sperm for future use. This we've heard about in other animals. So that wraps up effectiveness. Fantastic. That yes. was a lot of news. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into ingenuity, I'll give it a five. That's generous, I think. They are photonegative. They will hide from light. Photonegative? Yes. This is the term I came across while reading about them. Oh, as in like they have negative feelings towards light? Because <laughs> I know light means, like photo, the prefix yes. means light. Yes. I guess I would have thought of like photophobic would make more sense. It would. I don't know. But no. Because when I think photonegative, I think of like a negative of a photograph. Sure. So when you said they're photonegative, I thought you meant that like when you take a picture of them, they come up as a negative They come or up something? with their own negative filter. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So bad vibes from light. They don't like the light. I get it. I feel that. And another little comment on breeding. They have an interesting ritual. Some do. Okay. Some of the species males will place their spermatophores on their own heads to present them as a trophy <laughs> to females. <laughs> are we playing two truths and a lie? No, these are all truths, no made, lies. You made that up. <laughs> As a hat, you say. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and present them mm -hmm. to the, the object of their affection. Yes, and then presumably, if accepted, we'll um, apply it as necessary. Oh, my God. <laughs> 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 Babe, how come you never? <laughs> See, this is why I said we might want to consider a blooper reel for this one. Uh, nope, this is all going in. All this right. is all going straight in. All right, all right. For aesthetics, I'll give it a 9 out of 10. They're so cute. I think so. It's just there's something very, very slightly unsettling about it just because of how different they are from everything else. Right. You, you can see similarities with other things a little bit here and there, but seeing them all together in one little package is sure. very different. I get that. Yeah. But they're so cute. They are cute. I think so. Uh, they have like all the qualities that I like mm -hmm. of snails, the cute little face, mm -hmm. like the little face with the little stalks on the front. Tiny little adorable mouth, which I think is very cute. Mm -hmm. Chunky little feet. I think they're adorable. They are. Super cute. 
Also, something I didn't really mention what they look like. They have a wide variety of colors and patterns. Oh, really? Yes. Aw. So, again, since we're talking about such a large group of animals, there's quite a few in there. I've, I've seen, like, blues and purples and reds and oranges. Yeah, and... I think the ones that I've seen pictures of are, like, the really big ones mm-hmm. that are, like, bright red. Mm-hmm. Like, a really striking yellow, like, yeah. red color. It's really cool. And if this is the first time, listener, that you're hearing about these, I strongly recommend looking up some videos of them. Of course, there are those documentaries that we talked about out there. Mm-hmm. How are they moving around? Are they kind of just, like stepping like a caterpillar or are they doing like the the wave that you see in like millipedes and stuff it's similar to caterpillars but they're not doing the inchworm thing oh okay and the way their legs movement is it's based off i guess hydraulics is the closest thing i can <laughs> describe it as because there's there's not muscle and bone or exoskeleton structures moving there it's it's all based on liquid pressure liquid pressure yeah so like to, to extend their legs it's it's like an internal pressure change that's happening whoa yeah i guess that makes sense because they're basically little water balloons Which, now that i think about it i think arthropods work the same way technically it's yeah, just theirs is contained in an exoskeleton yeah theirs is a little bit more like machinery like okay i just i was pulling up a video on youtube so i could see a video mm-hmm. of what it looks like when they're walking around and it's kind of funny. It's they do have that sort of like wave pattern mm-hmm. motion of the legs, but the legs are kind of waving out to the side. They're not very fast either. No, not too fast, which makes sense for their main method of prey capture. Yeah, that's true. They don't need to be, you know. <laughs> yeah. They said I'll bring you down to my speed. Exactly. I don't need to match your speed. <laughs> Just it's faster than zero. <laughs> <laughs> interesting yep uh they can be pretty hard to find because they are nocturnal they they mm-hmm. like you know dark moist places so like thinking dead logs in a rainforest sure. type thing in terms of conservation status you know we talked about there's hundreds of species of these but 11 species of velvet worm are listed on the iucn red list oh yeah the biggest threat is usually habitat loss sure these. Especially, like, the places that you named mm-hmm. are, like, these, like, tropical, uh, like, rainforest areas right. are always going to kind of be in the crosshairs for a lot of habitat loss. Yeah. Protect our very strange friends. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, protecting lots of other things. Yeah. It's not just about them. So, yeah, that is the velvet worm. Great. Thank you so much. That was something. <laughs> How on earth am I going to follow that up? <laughs> Um, well, I don't know. I think I've got a contender. Okay. It's, it's pretty good. Let's hear some promos from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. Hello, I'm Lori Kilmerton. We do a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it anytime you want it because there's hundreds of episodes. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing comedy forever, and we should both quit. So why don't you listen to <laughs> before we leave this not only terrible business but this awful world and find out why we can't (laughs) because we love it so (laughs) jackie and Lori show every week here on maximumfun.org hi it's jesse thorne the founder of maximum fun i am breaking into this programming to say thank you to max funds members your purchases in this year's Postmax Fund Drive patch sale raised over $50,000 for Trans Lifeline. Maybe you already know about the good work that Trans Lifeline does. If you don't, they're a trans run organization that offers direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis. 
If you want to learn more about the work Trans Lifeline does or support them further, go to translifeline.org. Thanks for supporting Maximum Fun. Thanks for supporting Trans Lifeline. And thanks for being awesome people who want to do good in the world. All right. Enough with the knotworm. <laughs> what do you have this week? This week, I am humbly submitting for your approval the Binturong, which is also known as the Bearcat. Ah, approval yeah. granted. <laughs> the uh, scientific name is Arctictus Binturong. And I cheated a little bit with this one because a, a young listener named Violet Van Dyke sent an email in and asked for us to talk about civets, mm -hmm. which is a group of species. I'll, I'll describe a little bit more what civets are like in a minute. But binturongs, while not usually being referred to as civets, they do belong to the group, the same group as civets. Okay. But while I was looking through the list of civets for which one I wanted to talk about, the binturong came up and I realized that we hadn't talked about it yet, which shocked me because mm. I feel like I'm always thinking about them and talking about them. Yeah. Surprises me that we haven't done an episode on them yet. Yeah, and if, if that's been to wrong, don't want to be been to right. Dang, you stole it from me. I was going to say that. Oh, one no, way. no. Okay, you can cut this. No, well, it's too late now. <laughs> Commit to it. Don't be afraid of it. Um, but so, yeah, this one does go out to Violet Van Dyke. Thank you, Violet. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry if this wasn't what you wanted, but trust the process. It's so good. I promise. Um, and I'm getting my information from Smithsonian's National Zoo, San Diego Zoo, Zoo Atlanta, and an article from mangabay.com by Carly Nairn on October 13th, 2016, titled, What is a Binturong? What was that website? Mangabay. It's a conservation organization. Oh. They're oh. good source. So not the written comic book. No, okay. it is M-O-N-G-A. Uh, okay. Not manga as it. <laughs> no, I'm not just getting this off of Crunchyroll. Um, <laughs> new Binturong manga just dropped. Oh, I would read that. I really would. So yeah, if you've never heard of a Binturong before, you may have seen a picture of them or something, and or have probably seen them in a zoo, honestly, and maybe mm -hmm. just didn't exactly know what they were. They look like a scruffy little black bear with a really long tail. Mm. And they have these long silvery whiskers around their face. Um, kind of a puppy dog looking face. They have paws that look kind of like an like otter paws, I think. But the sort of defining characteristic is that really, really long tail and this like shaggy black fur. You can kind of see why they're called a bear cat. Okay. Yeah. But bad news. No. <laughs> Neither bear nor cat. Okay. So zero of those. <laughs> Um, gosh, velvet worm and bear cat. It's none of those things. I guess it makes sense because, you you know, you come up with a common name pretty quickly before yeah. you do all the research. It's usually vibe-based. So the binturong is about two to three feet long, which is about uh, up to a meter for metric listeners. Uh, and that's not including the tail. So the tail is like mm. another double that, basically. Like So the tail is as long as, if not longer than the rest of the body. And they do tend to get bigger in captivity than they do in the wild. And also the females are larger than the males. Okay. Girl boss. <laughs> we love her. Um, you'll find these in the forests of Southeast Asia. 
And specifically in like forested areas, there they're arboreal, so they live up in treetops. So they you're only going to find them in like sort of dense forests in that area. And the name Binturong comes from a, a local language that used to be spoken in Borneo that is no longer spoken. Oh. But the name persists. So we still call them Binturong. They belong to the taxonomic family Viveridae. And viverids are feliform mammals, and the word feliform means cat-like. Interesting. So cats belong to the feliform group, but other feliforms are things like uh, hyenas are part of this group, so they're more close to cats than they are to dogs, even though they kind of look like dogs. Um, So that's what feliform means. It just means cat-like carnivores. Okay. Um, And then the other viverids are civets and genets. And civets and genets both kind of look like stretched out cats. Mm-hmm. Um, they have kind of like a longer pointier nose than cats do, but still generally cat-like. Uh, for effectiveness, I'm giving the Binturong a 9 out of 10. Very good. And mostly for their arboreal adaptations. So things that they have built into their body to let them navigate the treetops. Okay. Um, first and foremost, kind of the first thing you notice when you see them is their tail. Mm-hmm. Their long tail. Lots of arboreal animals have long tails. It's great for balance. Right. But theirs is kind of unique among mammals in that their tail is prehensile. Okay. So that that's pretty interesting. It's very unusual for mammals. Right. Well, there's that weird perception that like like one might think there are more animals out there with prehensile tails than there are. I think yeah, there's really not. Yeah. Chameleons have prehensile tails. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and opossums, I think, do. But it's it's... it's Unusual for mammals to have uh, prehensile tails, but they do. So they can actually wrap it around tree branches and basically use it as like a bonus hand, mm. kind of. And the tail is also really strong. Okay. Because like it's it's bulky. It's a big, thick, powerful tail. It's very muscular. So when they're young, they can hang their body by their tail. Oh. And like, you know, just be like hanging down under a tree branch the tail can support the full weight of the body. When they get older and they get bigger, they kind of get a little too heavy for that. Man. But they still, like, enjoy doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. It's the same for Binturongs as it is for all of us. and they. Uh, but they still do like to hang upside down, so they just kind of use their paws and their tail together. Oh. It's like how you see a sloth hanging underneath yeah. a tree branch by its paws. <laughs> they do that, but, like, they also use the tail. And something interesting about the tail is that they keep it in, like, constant contact with whatever surface they're walking or climbing on. Hmm. So as they're walking, the tail, rather than keeping it, like, up in the air behind them, like some other animals with long tails do, like monkeys and, like, quadamundis will hold their tail straight up, they let theirs not just drag behind them, but kind of are intentionally placing it down behind them. Hmm. With the reason being that if they do slip then it'll already be touching the branch and can just hold on and keep them from falling, Hmm. which is a really cool idea. Like you don't, especially with the trees that they're climbing, you don't want to slip and fall. That's going to hurt real bad. So Mm -hmm. the tail is kind of acting as like a, like a rappel, like when you're rock climbing and you have like a harness on that's attached to something. Um, It kind of acts like that. But keep this idea that like the tail is always touching everything behind them because it comes up again later. I mentioned that they have, like, these otter paws. Yes. So their fingers kind of look like otter fingers, if you've ever seen them. They're kind of, like, a little longer than a cat's paws. They have these kind of, like, toes. Um, They have these thick paw pads so that they have good grip on the trees. Mm -hmm. Long hooked claws, like you see in other, like, arboreal animals. It's good for, you know, digging into the bark and keeping them hanging on. 
And then not only is their tail strong, but they're just super strong, like in general. Okay. Like you, I've seen, I watched so many videos of them climbing around in trees or on perches or something like that. And, you know, if a human wants to kind of pull themselves up onto like, I don't know, doing a chin up or something, it usually requires some hoisting mm-hmm. and like a little bit of jumping involved, you know, where you mm-hmm. need to kind of like, it, it takes a little bit. It's most people can't just kind of gracefully pull their body up. I mean, a few particularly skilled people can, but the binturongs are just like, it looks effortless mm. for them to just pull their entire body up and over a tree branch. Like they're, they're incredibly strong. That's cool. Yeah. It's really, really cool. And they're very graceful in the trees. They don't look like they would be because of how bulky they look. Mm-hmm. I think it's because the fur is so like shaggy that it makes them look a lot heavier, but they, they're very graceful. This is wild. Their wrists can rotate 180 degrees. Wow. And so their paws can point straight back behind them so that they can walk down the tree face first. Huh. Yeah. So they, when they need to climb back down the tree, mm-hmm. they just whoop, flip their paw right back around and climb straight down. Huh. Yeah. Fusas can do this. Interesting. Yeah, it's very, very cool. It's an unusual trait, but very useful for a... Yeah, I guess it makes sense to utilize the way the the claw sits, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, you want your claw to be able to hang on. So if it's it's pointing... If your paw is pointing up, you can use the claws more. Um, The only, like, deduction I gave it is that most arboreal mammals or just animals in general, navigate the canopy of the forest by, like, leaping or gliding or flying. Like, they're going treetop to treetop, right? Right. By using some sort of acrobatics. (laughs) But binturongs are just way too bulky and slow for that. Like, I mentioned that they're graceful, but they're not fast. So if they want to go from one tree to another, they have to climb all the way back down, walk across, and then climb back up, which is, like, not an effective way. That's like just like the least efficient way to navigate the treetops, I think. <laughs> this sounds like the sloth again. Yeah. <laughs> the sloth had the same problem. <laughs> like not being able to get from treetop to treetop, I think, is uh, I think is an oversight hmm. on their on their part. The next thing for effectiveness is probably the thing that most people are most likely to know about binturongs because it is impossible not to notice if you've ever been around one. And it is that binturongs being solitary creatures that don't like to share space with each other in order to communicate to others where their territory is, they leave behind very, very powerful scent marks. Mm. Lots of animals do this, um, but the binturongs is particularly strong and it is unique in that it smells exactly like buttered popcorn oh no have you ever smelled a binturong before i don't think so we've seen them we saw them at zoo atlanta but i don't think we were close enough to smell them well plus a zoo is a common place for there to actually be buttered popcorn (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) that's a good point that's a i would probably just assume there's a popcorn cart not in my immediate vision And then be excited about that. Can I tell the people about last time we were at the zoo and you wanted popcorn? Yeah. (laughs) We were at the zoo and there were all sorts of people walking by with with fresh buttered popcorn. And it looked so delicious and it smelled good and Christian wanted it so bad, but could not figure out where people were buying it. (laughs) And didn't want to approach a stranger and ask them where they bought their popcorn. Yeah. So I had to initiate my extrovert powers. (laughs) And approach a stranger with popcorn and ask them where they bought the bag. 
<laughs> and you know what? She told me, and we went and got popcorn. We did. So it worked. Thank you, stranger. I, I think that's why every quiet person needs a loud person. <laughs> you need an emotional support loud person. To... I'm also a very large man, so... <laughs> So you don't want to just, like, approach women that are just <laughs> sitting, minding their own business at the zoo? Just seem to be setting up a popcorn theft. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I guess I could see that. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it wasn't the popcorn. It was the binturong ah. that we were smelling. Um, I have smelled it. And I, it is distinct. Okay. And it is actually a pleasant smell. Like, it smells really good. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to kind of dig into why this is and why it smells like that. So the smell comes from a chemical compound in the binturong's urine. Hate to break it to y'all. Anyone who loves huffing binturong aroma, it is pee. I'm sorry. Surely this wasn't a problem. Uh, the So there's a chemical compound in their urine, and it is called 2-acetyl-1-pyroline, or 2-AP. And this is the same exact compound that forms as a result of the chemical reaction that occurs when popcorn pops. Oh. So that's why it smells like popcorn, because it is the same chemical compound. Okay. This compound also occurs in other cooking processes that involve the Maillard reaction. Oh. Have you heard of this? Yes. Yeah. You're, well, you like cooking, so I'm sure mm-hmm. you're familiar with the Maillard reaction. Mm-hmm. So that is the, the reaction when you brown something that you're cooking and it releases a lot of aroma. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the Maillard reaction is, and it produces 2AP. Okay. So this chemical compound is what gives things like baking bread, toast, like rice, when you cook rice. This chemical is what's giving it that really, really pleasant aroma. So in a 2016 study by Duke University, researchers found that this chemical compound is probably formed as a reaction between the binturong's urine and some kind of bacteria, it's either in their gut or on their skin or on their fur or something like that. There's some bacteria that's reacting with their urine and producing 2AP. Hmm. So when the binturong pees, it does it in a squatting position. And this position means that a lot of the pee gets on their fur. So pee gets all over their fur, especially on their tail. Oh. And then when they walk around, they drag their tail everywhere behind them and it spreads the scent everywhere. I see. That's why I asked you to remember the dragging mm-hmm. their tail thing. Um, it's kind of like when Finley gets into peanut butter <laughs> um, and he's got peanut butter on his hand and he just runs around touching stuff everywhere. <laughs> uh, that's basically what the process is. I wanted to share this quote from the article about the research that I was reading. This was from an article on Duke Today's website titled, Why Bear Cats Smell Like Buttered Popcorn. And it was by Robin A. Smith in April of 2016. 2-AP was among the few compounds that lingered and became more dominant over time, a fact that the researchers discovered when a rush airmail shipment of frozen binturong urine was delayed on a hot tarmac en route to co-author Thomas Goodwin of Hendricks College in Arkansas for analysis. So so the sample got delayed in shipment, and by the time it made it, it was pungent I imagine <laughs> which i'm i'm sure was a fun discovery to make <laughs> but yeah um i just thought that was a, a funny little instance uh earlier you know with the velvet worm you mentioned that uh, some animals can delay implantation of an embryo 
like a fertilized embryo. Yeah, and this one was specifically that there's a a place in its anatomy where it can store the spermatophores to later use. Okay. Yeah. So this is a little bit different, um, but binturongs can mate at any time. So mm-hmm. they, they mate whenever, because they're solitary, they don't come across each other very often. Mm-hmm. You got to kind of take what you can get. Like if you see another bintrong around, you got to kind of take that chance um, and go ahead and do the mating then while you can. But the fertilized embryo doesn't implant into the uterus and begin developing into a baby until the timing lines up. Yes. So inside of her body, she holds on to the fertilized egg. So the, the, the sperm meets the egg, but then she holds it there and doesn't implant it in the uterus until the time of year is correct mm-hmm. to make sure that it lines up with, like, the time for the babies to be born. And this is to make sure that the baby is born during, like, the more rainy and prosperous times of the year. Yeah. yeah. You don't want your baby to be born in, like the dead of winter when there's no food. Mm-hmm. So um, she can delay. It's called delayed implantation. So basically it's like if the timing isn't right, they just make it right. <laughs> yeah. We talked about this exact thing with the California sea lions. Yes. Yep. They can do that too. For them, it was a matter of timing with their migration patterns. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Next for ingenuity, I'm going to give them an eight out of 10 because I watched a lot of videos of them on YouTube okay. because like I said, they're so common in zoos that there are tons and tons of zoos that have put videos up of them on YouTube. And I just felt like after watching all these videos of Binturongs, they are very methodical and intentional in like the placement of their paws and their tail and their weight Hmm. you know like it feels uh, their movement almost feels like watching a monkey in slow motion do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it feels like they're they're very, very intentional about... They're not just kind of, like, lumbering through the trees, through the branches and stuff. Okay. Did you mention what they eat? Oh, that is interesting. They are carnivores. Okay. But they mostly eat fruit. Okay. So they do sometimes eat things like, you know, birds, rodents, eggs are okay. a big thing they like to I, eat. I was thinking about it because that behavior sounded like a stalking predator mm-hmm. method. Yeah, it does look very cat-like. Okay. Like the way that they move has that sort of like very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, that just to me screamed that they were like very knowledgeable of how to navigate mm-hmm. um, their environment. And... The binturongs, I, I was surprised that they stay balanced so well yeah. because of how bulky they are. You know, the videos I was watching, a lot of them were on these like artificial perches. Mm-hmm. And the perch wouldn't be like completely stable. It would be really wobbly and kind of rocking as the binturong was climbing on it. But they were really good at like leaning in just the right way to keep it balanced. That's and okay. yeah, I just felt like they were so good at it, very graceful and agile. They're commonly kept in captivity at zoos, and in zoos, they respond really well to training and can be trained really, really well to do all sorts of things. Oh. They can respond to targets, but also to, like, hand signals. Mm-hmm. So you can, like, make a gesture, and they'll perform an action. Um, you can get them to do postures and gestures to, like, help with their veterinary care. So, right, things like stand up on your yeah. hind legs so that you can get a look at their belly mm-hmm. or or present their paw so you can give them, like, I don't know, you could take a blood draw or something. Just like the otters. I know. Or you can get them to, like, perform behaviors for educational presentations. Mm-hmm. Um, Binturongs are very popular animal ambassadors. Mm. So you'll see them used a lot for, like, outreach presentations and stuff. You'll okay. see, like, zookeepers that will, like, come out with a binturong, like, on their shoulder or on a leash or something. Hmm. 
<laughs> the keeper at the Taronga Zoo on, on a YouTube video said that their binturong puts fruit in his mouth, chews it up, and then spits out only the skin. Huh. Which is very impressive, I think, as anyone who's ever, like, tried to unwrap a candy in their mouth or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Did they specify what kind of fruit? Like bananas and uh, stuff okay. like that. He would uh, peel them and then and then spit them out. They do communicate vocally a little bit. Howls, grunts, hisses, mm. they purr. They seem to really enjoy grooming themselves. Aww. Yeah, it seems like it's a very comforting action to them. Um, so all of this is adorable and endearing and great. Yes. But just in case it has you thinking you might want one as a pet. Uh, this comes from that mangabay.com article that I was reading. Mm-hmm. And in this article, it contains a quote from Lonnie Grassman, who is a scientist at Texas A&M who works with the IUCN as a specialist in small carnivores and um, has done a lot of trapping and collaring of wild binturongs. So mm. has, has trapped and interacted with them a lot. And apparently, according to Lonnie, they can be real mean. <laughs> They're very aggressive. Uh, Lonnie says, quote, I've captured hundreds of animals and the binturong is the most fierce, oh. said Grassman in an admiring tone. Also, unlike cats who, when released from a trap, tend to run away... Binturongs can be aggressive and chase nearby humans when released. <laughs> chase them down. Immediate revenge. <laughs> he said, "He said you are not getting away with this. Absolutely <laughs> not. You think you can come into my house?" Uh, a further quote from uh, Lonnie Grassman says, "They are quote more scary than a leopard." Said Grassman about his trapping experiences with wild binturongs in Thailand. They are looking to kill you. Oh, boy. Yeah. So they are real mean, real feisty. This is, of course, the wild ones, right? Like, I'm sure ones that have been raised by hand in a zoo are a little more amenable, (laughs) a little more accommodating. Maybe, but I'm not giving them that chance. No, I'm not going to test them on it. But yeah, the (laughs) the wild binturongs apparently are, you know what I think? This is like an arboreal wolverine, basically. Ah, okay. That's what it kind of seems like to me. Hmm. Yeah, very, very cool. Uh, finally, aesthetics for the Binturong. I'm giving them a perfect score. 10 out of 10. I think this is the perfect animal. Oh. I wouldn't change a thing. I think they did everything right. No everything notes. about them is perfect. No. <laughs> they, uh, they have a puppy dog face, which is adorable. Big, round, wet nose. So cute. Otter paws. They have l- those long, white whiskers that are really, really cute. Mm-hmm. Um, these, like, wide, low-set ears. Kind of like the palace cat had those, like, ears on the side of its mm, body. Okay. And then the ears have these like long tufts of fur. So they just look so fluffy. They're just and then as they get older, much like people, their hair turns silver. Aww. So like you'll see the older they get, the more silver they turn, where like the tips of their black fur will turn. They they get a real salt and pepper look going on. Um it's very cute. Mm. Uh and then probably one of my favorite things about them is that they often rest by Sometimes they'll, like, curl up into a ball, you know, like uh, some other tree-dwelling mammals will. Mm-hmm. But I've seen so many pictures of them resting by just lying flat on their belly along a tree branch. And they just let their little paws dangle beneath them. Aww. Like a little, like a, like a little hammock. They're just, <laughs> and, and they just look so blissful. They're just, like, splayed out on the branch, letting their little paws dangle beneath them. It's so cute. They look so unbothered. <laughs> you know, like they, uh, camouflage who? I'm on vacation. (laughs) They're just, they're the cutest. I think this is like the perfect animal. I love them. 
And uh, to wrap up for the Binturong, they are vulnerable, according to the IUCN Red List. So um, habitat loss to logging and forest conversion are their biggest threats. Okay. Um, especially where they live, the conversion of their forests into palm oil monocultures. Yeah. So if you've ever seen these pictures of these like massive, massive swaths of land where it's just palm oil trees as far as the eye can see, that's a real problem for them. Mm-hmm. Because that's not the right type of tree for them. Um, you know, they need a forest that has lots of different types of trees, lots of different plants and, and a healthy biodiversity. So that's, I think, a big reason why like sustainable agriculture is so important to consider. Like if, if you're in the type of position where you can think about sustainable agriculture in the products that you're buying, palm oil is a big one. Mm. You know, that's like a big one that people talk about making sure that you're buying products that are sustainably sourced, especially look into your palm oil sources. Right. Binturongs are really important seed dispersers. Ah. Yeah, so they eat a lot of fruit that gets a lot of, you know, seeds and stuff in their body. The fruit seeds actually benefit from being digested in their system. It seems like like when they do eat the seeds, the seeds grow better. Hmm. And then it also disperses the seeds, right? They they carry it with them like they'll eat the fruit, go, you know, walk a certain distance and then poop there and plant that seed far away from where the original tree was. Yeah. So it's a, a really important way that they are, you know, contributing to a healthy forest. Mm. So all of this is why, you know, binturongs are an important animal in addition to being the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> They're so cute. They're cute and they smell good. Like how often is that the case with animals? So few animals smell good. It's so rare that you get a a wild animal that just smells delicious. (laughs) Well, thanks, baby. Of course. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And thank you, dear listener, for spending this time with us today. I hope that you enjoyed what you heard. Um, If you did, I'd love it if you could uh, give us a five-star review on your podcatcher, like Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Um, Mm -hmm. means a lot to us. If you'd like to hang out with us online, we have Facebook group, we have Twitter, Instagram, um, a really awesome Discord server that I I personally spend a lot of time in, mm-hmm. um, talking with folks there because everyone there is really nice and fun to talk to. So, you know, come hang out with us. We're friendly folks. Thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on the network alongside the other amazing shows that are on there. Um, if you'd like to check those shows out and learn how you can support our podcast, you can head over to MaximumFun.org. And thank you, Louis Zong, for our incredible theme music that we love so much. And that is just a nice little cherry on top of the podcast Sunday. Mm-hmm. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.